Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? It is he who stretches out the heavens like a tent, who brings the rulers of the earth as nothing. He blows upon them and they wither. Lift up your eyes. Who created these? He numbers them, calling them all by name. Not one is missing. Why do you say my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Even youths will faint and be weary and the young will fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the word of the Lord. We all remember those times when great tragedies came into our lives. My mother and father would talk about where they were December 7, 1941, when they first heard that, that Hawaii had been attacked by the Japanese. They knew their lives had been changed forever. I remember being in systematic theology class Friday just before noon, November 22, 1963, when someone came running down the hallway screaming, they've killed the president. And our younger generations will grow up hearing 9-11, 9-11, 9-11, 2001. It will be forever there. A day when we realize the Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, would not protect us. We could not build a wall high enough around our country to protect us from people who wanted to do us harm. So the Bible has much literature around those kind of catastrophic events. Much of the Hebrew scriptures, particularly the great prophets, are centered in an event that occurred in the latter part of the 8th century before the coming of our Lord. <clears throat> Assyria grew stronger and stronger on the northern borders of the ten northern tribes. Remember the tribes had separated. The ten northern ones were called Israel. The two southern ones were called Judah. Assyria grew stronger and stronger and finally swept across the border into these northern tribes burning, looting, raping, plundering, intermarrying until the ten northern tribes disappeared, the lost tribes of Israel. So those who remained in the south, those two tribes remaining, tried to rally the king, the royal family, the priests, and the people to reaffirm their covenant with God. There was temporary reform after each one of these great preachers, but none of the reforms lasted very long. And 140 years later, another dreaded enemy came from the north. The forerunners of the modern-day Iraqis came from ancient Babylon, laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. When the people were running out of food, they had to surrender. The temple was looted and then burned. The royal palace looted and burned. The gates of the city burned, the walls tumbled down so that Jerusalem was defenseless and the best and brightest were rounded up and forced marched away to Babylon. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah are written by a prophet back in that 8th century. 
encouraging reform, encouraging turning again to their God and to his wishes for them. Chapter 40. Chapter 40 and following, written by a very different person at least 140 years later, in exile in Babylon, back in Advent. The first few verses of chapter 40 were an appropriate lection. The part sung by the tenor soloist in Handel's Messiah, Comfort, comfort ye my people, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, tell her her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned. And now the first Sunday in Lent, we pick up right after that passage with the passage for today. Written by that prophet in exile in Babylon in the middle of the 6th century. They were carted away in 587, 586, you recall. Have you not known? Have you not heard? But the first verse I want to lift up to you is rather awkwardly written in English. I don't think our translators did a great job here. Why do you say my right is disregarded by my God? Rabbi Gunter Platt, I think, does it much better. In his translation, he asks, My God, why have you forsaken us? He said it was the cry of the exiles in Babylon. It was the cry of the people in Auschwitz and Birkenau and Buchenwald and Dachau and Majdanek and all the others. My God, why hast thou forsaken me? It was the call of Jesus on Friday. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It is the cry of persecuted people, of sick, powerless, poor, weak, all of us, at some time or other, are tempted to cry out, My God, why have you forsaken me? We need to be loved and cared for. Jane Moore lives in a little bitty town over in Tennessee called Coalfield. She said that she was married happily for 35 years and then her husband died. That she was still grieving his death. A few months later, just after dark, her doorbell rang. She went to the front door, peeked through the little window, and could see the retired high school principal standing there. So she opened the door. And he said to her, Ms. Moore, the men at our church have decided to have a sweetheart banquet for all the widows in our community. She said, even that word sort of shocked me. I wasn't thinking still yet of myself as a widow. But I listened to him and he said, we're having a sweetheart banquet for all the widows in our community. I've brought you an invitation. I think you would have a good time. She thanked him very much. He went away. She closed the door. And she decided, well, maybe, yeah, maybe I should do that. And so she went to the Valentine's sweetheart banquet for the widows. And these men really worked hard for them, she said. They had everything decorated. They had cooked, and they served course after course after course of wonderful food, finally ending up with roses and chocolates and valentines made by the little children in their Sunday school. Children like my grandchildren, she said, had written me, drawn me a valentine. I went to that church the next Sunday morning because I needed to be loved and cared for and cared about. Number two. Twice, this prophet then asks of those who say, Why have you forsaken us? Do you not know? Have you not heard? Have you not been told? 
Here again, Rabbi Gunter Plaut says, you see, they've had every opportunity to know. These are the people of the Torah. These are the people of the great prophets. They've had every opportunity to know. Why do they not? By noon on Friday, I had the sermon finished. I was answering mail, doing other things Friday afternoon. And then late in the afternoon, I started driving home. And I was listening to the radio on the way. A reporter said, I've been noticing how many times Mike Huckabee has religious references in his speeches. But I wondered how many people really recognize his allusions to Scripture. So he said, I've been following Mr. Huckabee around. And as I have, I've waited till he got through with a speech after carefully jotting down any reference that he had to some biblical story. And then I would seek out the first ten people I could get to talk to me and ask them if they understood what he was saying. Now, this is not a speech for or against Mike Huckabee. simply saying, catch the point here. In a recent speech, he said, Sometimes one who has a few smooth stones can defeat someone who's wearing a full coat of armor. When the speech was over, this reporter said, I started asking the first ten people who would talk to me, what do you think that was all about? And they said, the Afghan war, the Iraqi war, uh, Iran's search for nuclear weapon. Not one of the ten had any memory of David and Goliath. In a recent speech, she said, he was asked from the audience, uh, Mr. Huckabee, to what do you attribute your most recent victories? And he said, I believe I'm empowered by the same one who took a boy's lunch and fed a multitude. Speech was over. The reporter was asking ten people, what do you think that was all about? Not one of the ten got it. Not one. And then said the other day, someone was saying to him before Governor Romney dropped out, do you realize reports are that Governor Romney has spent $35 million of his own money in his campaign? How are you going to challenge that? And he said, well, sometimes a widow's might counts for more than the offerings of a very wealthy person. The reporter was running through the crowd afterward asking about that woman and said, a might, a might. Those are bugs that get in your bed, aren't they? Or something And he said, not one of the ten got it. Not one. And then he interviewed the dean of a major theological seminary and asked him. And he said, well, no, I'm not surprised. All of our polls show that half the people in America cannot name the four Gospels. Half the people in America do not know if the book of Genesis is in the Old or New Testaments. Have you not known? Have you not heard? No, they don't know. They haven't heard. Mark Darrow is an attorney in our community. He's also the son of a Methodist preacher. Um, Mark does some creative writing, and every so often he sends out one of his stories to I don't know how many people. I'm grateful to be on his mailing list. I got another one of his stories uh, just recently. He was talking about uh, how he and his wife had invited a 15-year-old nephew of theirs, Nick, uh, to go out with them to western Oklahoma in the month of June, have a little vacation. And he said, I really wanted to revisit some of the places that were important to my family, and I wanted to be sure Nick knew about these. 
So he described how Oklahoma changes as you go west from green country here around Tulsa, how it changes and changes and changes again. So finally they got into far western Oklahoma where you have the mesas that suddenly spring up out of the earth it looks like and you have the big canyons uh, that you don't see until you're almost right on top of one of them. And many of you know there's a big state park out there in one of those canyons. He said we checked into cabins there in that state park. And for the next five days we took Nick to see these places where five generations of our family have lived. Five generations. He said all day we kept him going from this church to this cemetery to this old country store to this farm. And late in the afternoons we'd get back and have dinner there and sleep, get up, get ready to go the next morning. But one of those days in June it was particularly warm, he said, and we decided, why don't we go swimming when we get back? We all three got on our swimsuits and then discovered that was the day the lifeguard was off, no, no pool open. And my wife said, well, I've seen a little creek running through the park here. Why don't we just get in that water? It looks cool. And so he said, we got into the water and it was not cool. It was cold. It was cold water. And we were down in that canyon, uh, wading around in that pretty clear, cold water, when suddenly we glanced up and there was an old man standing there by the creek. Mark said he'd probably be 75, 80 years old. And he asked us, have you ever seen the spring that makes this creek? said, never had. He said, I'd like to show it to you. And as we started following him through the woods, he said, he told us that his wife had died two years before and that every afternoon lady comes out and walks down this creek to the creek, to the spring. And then he said, you know, this is the canyon where Chief Roman Nose brought the Cheyenne every winter. During the summer, they followed the buffalo herds. But in the winter, they came to this canyon and moved down into the canyon where the north winds would blow over the top and not be so cold and devastating. And he said, I want to show you the spring that old Roman knows found. And Mark says, as they went up this stream, they suddenly started hearing noise, a rumbling kind of noise, and it got louder and louder, and they could tell the stream was deeper and wider and deeper and wider, and suddenly they rounded a little curve, and there it was. He said, I couldn't believe hundreds of gallons of cold, pure, clear water pouring out of this spring. I mean, gallons upon gallons. And this old man said again, two years ago, my wife died, and almost every day I come to the spring of everlasting water. A connection to a spring that was there 200 years ago for Chief Roman Nose and 200 years before that and 200 years before that. This writer says, don't you know the I am who I am is from everlasting to everlasting. Look up. Do you see these stars? He put every one of them there, has a name for everyone. Not one of them is missing. Do you think this ruler in Babylon is all-powerful? I tell you, this one, the I am who I am, brings princes to naught. He blows on them, and they wither. And in Hebrew, it's they tumble away like leaves in the fall. I tell you, this is the one. Number three, third important thing, it is he 
He who stretches out all of these areas, he blows upon the, this wayward one. It is God, this God of yours, the I am who I am. Gail and I have seen Rodin's famous statue of the thinker. Many of you probably have as well. When I was studying art appreciation back in college, I never dreamed I would see the great paintings of the world that we've had privilege to see in the great statuary as well. Uh, Rodin, of course, has some of his most significant works in Paris and France. But he has one great one in the Metropolitan Museum in New York and another one in Philadelphia. The one in Metropolitan New York is called The Hands of God. And the one in Philadelphia is called The Hands of the Devil. Uh, They're similar, quite similar. But the hands of the devil have in them a ball of clay. And it looks like it's been pushed on and compressed and distorted. And the hands of God in the New York Metropolitan show God's hands with this ball of clay. But the fingers have already been working on this ball of clay. And it's rather easy to see that a man and a woman are coming from this ball of clay. This one of yours, this God of yours, uh, created the heavens and the earth. He finally blows away those who mistreat and destroy little ones of his and molds and fashions humans the way he wants them to be. Let's go to number four here. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. These are exiles to whom he's speaking. Shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This God has not forsaken you. He knows you, knows your name. Not one of you is missing from him, from his heart. He knows you. Some of you share your reading with me. Recently, one of you shared with me a book written for children. It's called The Marvelous Journey of Edward Tulane. Never heard of it. Never heard of the author, Kate de Camilo. Kate's written a number of books. He was telling me, this member of ours, in his letter to me, he said, this is the one I bought for you, and I've discovered there are others now, and he mentioned several others and told me one he thought I might like even better than this one. This one is 200 pages long. But the print's larger than than one would find in a usual book, and it's illustrated, so it didn't take me so terribly long to read it. Edward is a rabbit. He's a China rabbit. A wealthy grandmother had him made for her granddaughter. So like China dolls, he's a China rabbit, and he's dressed in a beautiful silk suit and has leather shoes. He is much loved by the granddaughter, Abilene, but Edward feels Nothing. He has no emotions. None. As the story progresses, little Abilene and her family are going on the Queen Mary to Europe, and she wants to take Edward the rabbit along. She's sitting out on the deck with him in the warm sun one afternoon when two rascally boys come by, and one of them grabs her rabbit, and when she tries to retrieve him, tosses him over over her head to his brother, and when she tries to retrieve him, tosses him over the head of his brother, and he tosses, and Edward goes over the rail and into the sea. He's made of China. He's heavy. He drops all the way to the bottom of the ocean, and he's there for almost a year. 
And then a hurricane comes and it stirs up the ocean, digs so deeply into the ocean that Edward is pulled off the bottom and is swept up in a fisherman's net. And the old fisherman takes him home to his wife who fixes him some new clothes. She can't tell if he's boy or girl. She puts him in little girl's clothes and she talks to him as if he were her own child because she's lost a child years before when he was a little boy of five. And then this fisherman and wife's older daughter come home. She's a rascally sort. Edward can tell she's up to no good right away. And she thinks her mother and father are spending far too much time talking to this silly rabbit. And so when they're not looking, she throws him out in the garbage. And the garbage man hauls him away and throws him out on the city dump. He has another feeling now. Fear while he was in the ocean. Despair now. Everything smells so bad. And he lies there for six months. And then an old dog comes sniffing around one day and digs him up and hauls him away to his master, who happens to be a hobo. And so Edward rides trains he's not supposed to ride. is around campfires where lots of other hobos are. And he hears these hobos talking about their children, children who no longer live with them, children whom they do not see, but children who have a place in their heart. And Edward starts having all kinds of emotions. Then one night on a train, a security guard finds him, the hobo and the little dog, and tosses Edward out the, out the side of the train and later gets rid of the hobo and the dog as well, but they are far separated from Edward. An old woman finds him this time and makes a scarecrow out of him. And a boy comes along and finds him hanging there in the garden and decides to take him down to his little sister who's four and dying. She hugs Edward so hard, nearly squeezes the breath out of a china rabbit. But he loves it. He loves it. And then she dies. I won't tell you chapter 27. If you want to read it for yourself, that'll be fine. Um, Edward finally ends up with this little boy uh, whose sister has died. The little boy's father is a, an alcoholic and he's abusive. They have no mother. And so the little boy makes Edward into a puppet. And starts making him perform out on the street. He has a little box and people toss in coins. One night the little boy is so hungry, goes into a cafe and orders far more than he can pay for. Eats it all, but when the bill comes he cannot pay. And the man who owns a cafe grabs the china rabbit, throws him out the door, and his head is broken into 21 pieces. But the little boy scoops him up and takes him to a doll maker who restores him. A doll maker. He even puts silk clothes on him and real leather shoes on his feet and puts him up on the shelf for someone to buy. And Edward sits there year after year. Other little dolls come and go. They're claimed by someone, bought by someone. Edward sits there. And finally, a very old doll, more than 100 years old, who's been broken and repaired and broken and repaired and says to Edward, wonder who will come and take us this time. And Edward says, I don't care. Love is too hard and it hurts too much. I don't care. Before the last chapter, this little doll says to him, But if you have no intention of loving or being loved, then your journey is pointless. Pointless.